Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. There are millions of people around the world who are looking for healing and well-being through psychedelics. And the emerging psychedelic wellness industry is looking to help and serve these people. What does it take to manage the daily routine of a psychedelic wellness venture? What are the biggest challenges and how do you establish safe protocols? How do you ensure proper integration and what are the key differences between a retreat and a clinical experience with psychedelics? Today's guest has answers to these questions. Neil Markey is the co-founder and CEO of Beckley Retreats, a space offering comprehensive psilocybin-assisted therapy retreats. Prior to getting his MBA in finance and economics at Columbia University, Neil was a captain in the U.S. Army Special Operations 2nd Ranger Battalion and was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Neil credits mindfulness and psychedelics with his own profound healing from depression and PTSD, and his journey of healing himself in the past has grown into a journey of assisting the healing of many others in the present. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Neil, welcome to Gateway Sessions. It's such a pleasure to connect with you here. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Me too, very much. And you have a really interesting life story and you also have really interesting perspectives and thoughts for example something that i found in the bio of your instagram account you have a quote there the smartest thing i have ever done is learn how to lose my mind tell mm. us more about this please yeah i think that my mind has allowed me to do some things in life are notable or that i'm proud of but my mind has also gotten in my way and made it really hard to connect with things that are arguably more important than mental frameworks. Being able to use the mind as a tool and not become the mind, I've found to be really helpful. And I'm still figuring it out. It's like a kind of a daily effort. Absolutely. That is a lifelong journey. And could you go into more detail? detail? For example, what would your mind or your brain or your mind or both, what would they have kept you from, especially? And when did you notice that in life? So I guess my quick background is I was in this service. Well, before that, I was doing my undergrad in math. I loved math and thought that I was going to do that as my career. And then September 11th happened. And then long story short, I ended up in the service, ended up Iraq once, Afghanistan twice. I got back and then went to grad school. And I think it was there that I finally had this realization that I didn't have a lot of control over my mind. When I was, when my first, like 10 years ago, I got introduced to meditation and I really was looking for a way to 
help myself deal with this misery that I was in that I've now learned is fight or flight, trauma response and all these. But I remember sitting to meditate and you, you practice present moment awareness. So you just want the attention to sit in the nap. I couldn't do that. My mind would run away and it would mm -hmm. think about something. And so that was like the first time I think I ever even had that perspective that, oh, I'm separate from my thoughts and there's an observer that's here and the two selves. And then my mind, I think, has been, the mind is great at solving problems. And I think I was an entrepreneur and a consultant for a while. And, and I think I had a bit of a sharp mind, which was good. It could scan the world and look for problems and identify them and break them into pieces and make sense of them and solve them. But if you do that too much, then it can separate you from heart things, connection things. That, that They're very different parts of us. And if you overemphasize one, you can do it to the detriment of the other. And I just have done that at many periods of my life and I'm constantly trying to find this balance between the two. One, is it necessarily bad or good? It's, are they in equilibrium? Are they supportive of each other? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this with us, Neil. And just to give the audience also a little bit of more detailed context, you were actually in the U.S. Army Special Operations. You were a captain, right. second, second ranger battalion. That's right. And what you just mentioned with the being able to scan for problems and then break them up into small parts, is that something that was also part of your training or maybe an ability you had that was honed during that period of your life when you were serving? Yeah, I think that from a young age, I had, I guess, a high aptitude. I was good at math and I was good at solving problems and physics and I got rewarded for doing that. And, and then in the army, yeah, it's, uh, the army's interesting. There's certainly a lot of planning, but the best operators, my whole position on war and the military industrial complex is very different now than it was then. If we set that subject, if we set that kind of debate aside for a bit, the best operators, the best soldiers are actually people that can get into flow state. So get out of their mind and get into the now. You, and you see this in professional athletes and is, right? Like the mind can get in the way. So it's learning how to get in the now, put the mind away. You, you need the mind, like the mind is a tool, but then you have to learn how to set it aside and just get to it. Close mm -hmm. to the, yeah. I think one of the best like contemporary terms that's used a lot is, is flow state, which is very different than absolutely being. Yeah. Yeah. And this is fascinating, Neil. I've never heard the expression flow state actually mentioned in conjunction with what you were just talking about with the best operators are those who can actually get into this flow state. That's really interesting. And something else I'd like to know. So when you came back into civilian life and you were dealing with all kinds of things and you, for example, I read that you tried different anxiety medicines, but nothing really helped. Prior to your first foray into meditation and then getting deeper into it, was there anything at all that gave you support, whether from the side of the medical or the military complex, or did you feel like you were completely on your own? First, I want to, I wasn't this like really special unit. I was more of just like a support guy. I was among like real heroes of mine and I did what I could. And, but there was a lot of, people that have had way tougher goes than me. I was quite fortunate. And 
did I feel helped? I think they, yeah, I think the service was trying to help. It's just, we have a very elementary understanding of the mind and the central nervous system and the trauma response. And we don't really quite know what to do to help people. And we're figuring it out. We've come a long way just in 10 years. So that's promising. But yeah, they were, I mean, we just, it's like that. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think that's the military. It's like they have the Western medical system to reference, but like they just end up pumping guys with a bunch of pills. It's not uncommon for people with severe PTSD to be on 20 or 30 medications. I'm not exaggerating. It's nonsense, but it's just like what they know. So I, I guess I, I think that people were putting a lot of time and resources in trying to help guys like me that were transitioning. They just didn't have the right toolkit and do this internal work. You have to want to do it. You have to show up because it's a mindset thing too. So until people are ready, it's hard to like top down it, you know what I mean? So it's how do you get people to, and then this is why psychedelics can be so powerful too, because you can give people these kind of whoa, these wake up experiences that just jolt them a bit and then you can get their attention. But for a lot of, especially like the special operations community, it's just even more challenging because they've been reinforced to be tough and, and suck this stuff up and drive on. And they've been conditioned for that and they've been rewarded for that. And that's how they've survived. So then now to shift that is, it's just really challenging. It's really challenging. Yes. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Even things that weigh less heavily on our psyche are very hard for us to break out of certain mental patterns and certain conditioning. And when it gets so fundamental, I can't even begin to imagine how hard it must be. Plus it's an entire culture that's weighing on the individual who's dealing with these challenges. Yeah. Uh, so with regards to psychedelics, how did you come in touch with psychedelics and why did you decide to use them as tools for healing yourself? Ten years ago, I got out of the service. I went to Columbia University for grad school and I was doing well professionally by most measures. I was at a good school. I'd been a pretty highly ranked officer and I was getting job offers at prestigious companies. And I was miserable. I was going through a divorce, cycling through different medications. I was drinking alcohol. I was isolating. I was quite angry. I remember just being at school and just like being angry at everybody for just having lightness because they didn't appreciate what was still going on overseas and being like pissed. And, and I was just at a, I was at a really low point and I didn't quite know what to do. And I buy the grace of God, I think stumbled into this. It was mindfulness for business leaders course taught by this man by the name of Holm Nguyen, who was doing his PhD at Columbia and was like a 30 year meditator. And he, I think was one of the first people, if not the first person that saw that I was struggling, even though I was performing well, and he under his wing and he taught meditation and it was, it was a struggle. I'm still learning meditation, right? It's a practice. It's not a light switch. It's not a mental exercise. 
I saw this opening. I knew that there was like, I had this intuitive sense. I was like, oh, wow, this is powerful. It's hard, but I need it. And, and I started really practicing and I had a, the soldier's discipline. So I, I was able to really do that. And things started to shift for me over a year or so. And then through this network of mm, consciousness seekers and meditators and well-being enthusiasts in and around New York, I had my first ceremonial use of psilocybin, but it was as a way to heal, right? I had done mushrooms in my youth, but drinking beer and completely different mindset. And that was very powerful. That was like psychedelics and meditation or they're interlinked. And so I had been developing this base of meditation and then I had this experience and it just accentuated everything that was happening. And then I had this couple year path where I spent a lot of my time thinking about spirituality and meditating and practicing and trying psychedelics. And so I had this like phase a few years ago is when I got into it 10 years ago. And when it comes to meditation, is there a particular practice that you have kept in your life ever since you started or do huh? you try different types of meditation so i got into mbsr which is mindfulness-based stress reduction which is john kabat-zinn's cool thought which i loved because i guess at the beginning i didn't really have any interest in spirituality i like, actually shied away from it i just wanted to feel better yeah. and so his approach was intentionally it sanitized. So it, I don't know if Kabat-Zinn's story, but he studied in the East under Buddhist practitioners. He's a Western medical doctor at University of Massachusetts. and was like, oh my God, this is so profound. How do I bring this back into the Western medical context? Well, I can't bring it back with all the Buddhist ties. So he was like, it's really at the end of the day, it's just present moment awareness. It's just practicing that. And he says it's so beautifully, it's so simple. It's paying attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. Just work at that. And so he had a like a really pragmatic, no, no woo approach that I appreciated. And then through that, I saw how big this, how deep this thing goes and have experimented with lots of different forms of meditation over the years. But most of the time when I meditate, I still just do the breath awareness, just sit on the breath depending on mood and what's going on. I'll experiment. I like the you know, MBSR. A lot of different spiritual traditions have like the body awareness scans and humming and chanting. And there's all different types, but they all have the very consistent theme, which is now. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that, Neil. And I think the MBSR is a very good starting point for people, you know, who are not connected to or interested in spirituality to get that started. Yeah. And I recently read a really interesting article about humming, since you mentioned it, and how humming has profoundly healing effects on our nervous system, certain yeah. chemicals that then flow into our body, produced by our body. And it was truly fascinating because some of the best tools that can help us are for free and we all have them free. Yeah. humming it's called the breath of life for a reason yeah and to reconnect to this and reconnect to our true power i think is really essential and that is something that a lot of people that i had the privilege to talk to about psychedelics have shared that psychedelics 
can help reconnect to one's own agency, to one's mm. narrative, instead yes. of having your story written for you. Yes. And you are the co-founder and CEO of Beckley Retreats. Yes. And you offer comprehensive psilocybin-assisted therapy retreats. So I would love to, a little bit further down the road of this conversation, talk about this agency and reconnecting mm -hmm. to our power. But first, I'd like to give the audience an introduction about your mission at Beckley Retreats and also the space you provide. So our programs, they're non-clinical, so they're not technically therapeutic because of the legal jurisdictions where we work have well-being programs, but we are upping the standards of these programs. So really more people will get access, safe access to these profound mystical. A lot of the conversation out in the industry right now is around how beneficial these plants compounds can be for severe PTSD, treatment, resistant depression, anxiety disorders, you know, you name it, that this extreme end of the trauma spectrum. And that's great, but there's also this benefit for the betterment of the world, we would call it. And so people that are listening, but maybe want to become more creative or more connected, grateful, right? Mm -hmm. Just by virtue of you and me being in the United States on a Zoom call, and I'm in New York and you're in LA, you could make an argument that we're in the 0.01% of mankind that's walked the earth, right? Like, legitimately. So then why are we as Americans and Westerners having such a hard time to be you know, being happy, right? It's because we've swapped out the things we really need oftentimes for material things and ego-centered things, right? And programs are helping people more self-actualize and get to better, even better versions of themselves, more empathetic, more creative, more energetic versions of themselves. And our programs, they're a blend of science with indigenous tradition. And we find that there's a beauty in both. And there's actually really not a divide between science and the mysticism. They reinforce each other. If you look at the real fundamental levels, you really pull back the onion. And our programs are 11 weeks long. We find that the psychedelics are powerful, but they're a tool. They're just a tool. And although people can get a lot out of just an individual mystical experience, we think we can get much more if you take them through a structured program and kind of give them some of these complementary practices to help them learn how to maintain these benefits, right? Like really what you need is habit change and you need mindset shift, right? You need the kind of action and you need the mind to have different way of looking at things. So our programs is four weeks of digital preparation where we teach people meditation, we teach breath work, we encourage some healthy diet changes. We get the group dynamic started. So all of our programs are done in a cohort model with 15 to 20 people because that's that's part of what we need to is authentic human connection. A lot, many of us have, have gotten away from that. And then we do six days in person at beautiful locations, deep in nature. We believe that doing this work in nature is really important or it's more optimal to do it in nature. Technology, doing a bit of the digital detox is how we run our programs. And in that six days, we have, we're doing all of the practices that we taught in the digital session, but now we're doing them together in nature. So we're meditating together. We're doing breath work together. We're eating really incredible, like organic meals. 
And then we have two psilocybin sessions. Those are on day two and day four. And those usually last about six hours. And even if you've done a ketamine assisted therapy session or like a one-on-one psilocybin session, it's, it is, it's beautiful to see this work done by a group of five to six trained facilitators that are also musicians and the indigenous tradition, but then we also have Western psychotherapists. So I, we have like really high standards and protocols so that people feel safe. And that's a really important part of doing this work, right? Is getting the environment right and getting everybody's mindsets right. So they, they feel really comfortable and can have a good experience. And then everybody goes back home and then we have six weeks of digital follow-up. It's a series of group calls. And then we have just some additional content and tools to help people like really try and make this change because from a neuroscience perspective, what it looks like is after high dose sessions of psilocybin or other psychedelics, you have this window of opportunity where the brain is in a bit more of a malleable state. And there's this analogy that I really love. It's like a skiing down a mountain. By the time you get to be our age, much of how we show up in the world autopilot. It's these like deeply rutted patterns that are in our psyche. And it's really hard to turn out because they're just so well run. Psychedelics, these high dose experiences can do is they almost put a fresh layer of snow. Now, those ruts are still there to some extent. And so if you're not thoughtful, you can go right back into them. Like the mind will go back to its old way. But if you're intentional and you really plan and you have, you really do the work and you show up, then you can lay in new pathways. And so you have this window of a few weeks to a couple months where if you do the talk therapy, if you do the meditations, if you really try and get committed to getting in nature more and changing who you're spending time with, it looks like it's more likely those things will stick. So that's like why we think this comprehensive program will give people better long-term outcomes. That's really excellent, Neil. I think there's also quite a consensus that is growing about how important preparation and especially also integration is so that people are not left alone with what potentially is an amazing and a great experience and may be helpful on its own. But the true power of these experiences comes when one is guided by people who know how to take our hands every step and make sure that these experiences also anchor. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for describing what really sounds like a gorgeous setting where you're having the retreats. And now, of course, the setting and also the energy aside, as far as the outcomes are for, let's say, mental health, do you have any anecdotal things that you can share what the difference between experience in a clinical setting and a retreat experience may be? From like an individual's perspective? Yeah, I think that, look, the clinic model and the one-on-one kind of therapy model looks like it's really working. Like the data is certainly supporting that, particularly for these treatment-resistant depression and severe different anxiety disorders and PTSD. So we should keep doing that. Uh, What we're doing is different, right? It's non-clinical. It's generally more people that have something they want to work on or they're feeling like they're stuck. Everybody's got stuff because we're human beings. But for our individuals, yeah, I think that even people that have done the one-on-one sessions, it's, it's a bit magical to see, to do this in a group, to do it in nature, 
to have a bit of a digital detox and really what the problem with the clinic, I think a lot of the benefit in some way does come from the space around the experiences. And so if you don't create the space, you're not given as much opportunity for the newness to present itself and the shifts to happen. So if you do a clinic session and then you go right back to work, it's less, it's going to be harder. We create more space in our programs. There's a reason why they don't feel like a corporate offsite. They're not supposed to. It's supposed to flow and you're supposed to have time to just be and be in nature. Nature's healing on its own. But yeah, we hear from people that have come through that have done clinic sessions that, that they thought they knew what they were, they, that they were going to experience, but then they were, this is unique and different. Mm -hmm. um, and the live music is really beautiful and important. I, again, I think that having a psilocybin session with a beautiful playlist playing from a speaker is great. That's great. More people could probably benefit from that. I think having a group of five or six facilitators that have been doing this work for decades that know how to use music and read the room and are doing this kind of art form is really beautiful. And you got to see it. So you got you to see it to believe it. Honestly, it's pretty, it's really special. It sounds wonderful, Neil. And I also liked what you mentioned before about the how spiritual spirituality and science are now also connecting and that it's a mix of both, especially when you look at whether it's the retreats or therapy that use psychedelics. And, you know, there's some people that we deeply connect with the idea of science, like Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton. And what's interesting is, and there's many more, but what's really interesting is that both of these men were actually deeply spiritual individuals. And there's a quote that I'd like to read from Einstein. And he said, who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. He's got some incredible quotes and yeah, one of my favorites of Einstein's, he says there's, because he saw this, right? Like you said, a lot of the physicists and the mathematicians saw the complexity and knew that there was more. It's obvious if you really, I mean, we can go off on a full tangent here and go into the physics, but one of his, my favorite quotes of his is, he says, there's two ways to live your life. One, as it is, as is if nothing's a miracle. The other is, is as if everything's a miracle beyond our ability to fully rationalize with our mind that's happening. And we, if you take the time to look, you can see it. And an example of this in Western medicine would be the placebo effect or Dr. Bedside Manor. These are very well-documented things that we can't describe. We have no idea how that happens. And there's so many examples of this when you actually start looking at physics, right? If you start looking at what's happening at the fundamental level, you look at the quarks, which is the most elementary kind of unit of something that we can see, it's pretty much consensus that they appear out of a vacuum from nowhere. <laughs> okay. And we are all compilations of that. All right. If everybody can agree on that, then something pretty wild's happening. And I think it's more of just like a humility thing where it happened in the last couple hundred years, but where we developed the scientific method. And then we said that we can't basically draw a straight line to or like solve on a chalkboard. That was just going to go over to woo land does exist. You can see it. We can, we just can't explain it. So as long as we are okay with that, just like knowing that there are some things that are beyond 
our ability to rationalize. And that opens up a whole new world that's beyond mind. Hashtag quantum physics, quantum entanglement, all those things. Right. That science it gets so fun. weird. It gets so, and it's okay. We'll, we'll continue making incremental steps to understanding, but I don't, we'll never fully understand it because by definition, it, it's the inexplainable, right? Yeah. But like we can keep stepping towards yeah. just like infinity, but in math, right? Like no matter how many times you divide a line, there's infinite there. There's infinite points between any two points. So you can keep cutting it and keep getting closer and closer. And there's still an infinite amount of things to know and understand that mm. we won't. And it's okay not to know everything. And I believe the moment when we become humble and step into that is also the moment when we actually will understand much, much more. Because when we become humble and set aside the stiff, parameters of what we believe this is how the world works and if i can't explain it whatever i can't explain doesn't exist that's actually when we become open to receiving information that can help us understand everything a tiny bit more exactly um, and that's also actually if you look at it root of science is that it is about going further, asking more questions. And it's not about shutting down stuff just because you can't explain it. Beckley Retreats is actually part of a bigger cosmos of the Beckley yes. Foundation. And the Beckley Foundation... Did you use the word Cosmo for uh, Amanda's, uh, Amanda Fielding's son's, son's name is Cosmo? Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought maybe you were no, referencing Cosmo. No, I so Amanda. Amanda's, Amanda's sons are Rock and Cosmo, which are just so fitting for a woman that has her story, right? <laughs> tell us, tell our audience, for those that don't know, if you can please tell them a little oh, bit about Amanda. My dear Amanda Fielding, she is an icon and I love her so much. She's just lived this incredible, creative, rebellious, meaningful, adventurous life and She's the founder and executive director of the Beckley Foundation, which is one of the world's leading research nonprofits for psychedelics. And she's been studying this stuff for decades. And for most of her career, the most of the world thought she was nuts because mm -hmm. who's this woman that has rallied the world's leading researchers around psychedelics really through sheer charisma and like just, she just was on a mission and she built this beautiful organization that has been doing a lot of the research that is why we are where we are today and are able to stand on this research and say there actually is something here it's not just it's not just hippies there's some real powerful benefit here and she's the co-founder of of the retreats business with me and her sons rock and cosmo are part of this next generation of entrepreneurs and visionaries that are really taking this next step in her legacy and bringing this stuff to the world because she never didn't, she didn't want to just keep it in labs for forever. That was never the dream. It was that we get this stuff safely to people so that they can have these incredible experiences and live a fuller, richer life. And Amanda will tell you nonchalant. It's so beautiful. She's like, all I ever wanted to do was like save the world. And it's, it's hard to argue that this isn't one of the best potential tools to really help people deal with what's going on and better states of being and 
become gentler and kinder, more connected. So yeah, it's beautiful. There's this whole Beckley ecosystem now. Cosmo runs Beckley SciTech, which is a drug development company, which is developing new compounds, iterating off existing compounds. And then there's Beckley Academy, which does facilitator training. So there's a huge gap in just the number of facilitators that are needed to fill this demand that's coming online in the next however many years. And then there's the foundation and then there's retreats. And then there's a handful of other kind of businesses that are in this ecosystem trying to bring this stuff to the world in a safe, mindful. Outstanding. And the Beckley Foundation was actually also instrumental in a lot of research studies that are coming out of such renowned universities such as Johns Hopkins oh, yeah. here in the U.S. Yeah, Hopkins, a lot of kind of the seed funding in the architecture of how we are thinking about psychedelics has all come from the Beckley Foundation. It's really been the Beckley Foundation and MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies with Rick Doblin yes. that have been driving this stuff. And the foundation is also does a lot of not just research, but has done a lot of really important public policy work. So mm-hmm. trying to push countries to rethink these like silly drug laws that just make no sense. The Beckley Foundation has been driving that for decades. Mm-hmm. So Amanda's an icon. She's so amazing. And the one thing I love about her too is it was, it's never been about the money for her. Their privileged family didn't need to, but she's never tried to amass a bunch of wealth for herself. It was really just she believed that this stuff was good and these compounds could help a lot of people. And she just ran with that and has continued to run with it. She's turning 80 soon and she's still working 12 hour days because she loves it. And she's finally getting the recognition that she deserves. She was just in The Economist as the queen of psychedelics. Forbes called her the queen of the psychedelic renaissance. So it's cool to see her get the this recognition that she deserves. That is wonderful. And we'd love to also have her voice here on Gateway Sessions if she's available sometime in the future. Yeah, we can talk about getting on her calendar, as you can imagine. Oh, I (laughs) Yeah. She's in New York next (laughs) next week, actually. She'll be giving a talk here, uh, which is really special. Well, at some point or the other... uh, We'd really love to connect with her. Her mission and what she's moved in the world are just phenomenal. Yeah, it's incredible. She's incredible. And back to your mission, Neil, back to Beckley Retreats. What are the biggest challenges running a retreat? It's this is it's challenge. It's like it's tough work. It's emotional work. So a lot of times people will have these challenging experiences in our programs. So holding all that and having facilitators that have enough emotional stability and things to be able to manage these like big events for people, figured out how to do that. And you really got to have excellent facilitators and have to have people that have seen it all, done it all, don't get worked up. Yes. Um, People of high integrity, of course, because especially when you're dealing with individuals who are in a very vulnerable state, yes, yeah. potentially yeah. also experiencing something like this for the first time. Yeah. I can imagine that the the screening process for facilitators yeah. is very tight and also very... Thing. What do you, the obvious aside, what do you base your decisions on 
when you actually decide to work with a facilitator? Yeah, it's super important. There is like a resume component. When what I mean by that is like documentable experience, number of sessions that they've been in. We ask people, give us examples of your most challenging ones. How did you manage that? And we're looking for people that have over 10 years of experience Mm -hmm. um, doing this type of work as like a bare, as like a bare minimum. And then for a senior facilitator, we are doing this blend of West and traditional or non-West. And so we do like to have, we do have a psychotherapist on each program. And it's important because they have a skill set that can be really helpful in the preparation and the post. And also, again, in, in terms of creating safe spaces, if you're bringing people from the West down, they like seeing letters after the name, just the fact. And that's okay. It gives people, it makes people feel like there's some standards and there are. We also have senior facilitators that have just like deep, long-term indigenous experience, just like running these ceremony programs, right? And there's a way that, that they do them that's quite artful. And we like pairing those two kind of modalities together and then filling in teams around kind of those two those two leads. So you asked me about like the screening. So there's this like kind of check, have they met this criteria? Do they have the right credentials? Do they have enough reps under their belt? But then a lot of it's, and this is something that's a bit harder to standardize, but it's trying to get an understanding of what is their current state of being? Because you can talk about this work all day long. I've had periods in my past where I was talking about meditation a lot. I was teaching meditation, but I wasn't meditating. My central nervous system was out of alignment and I was a bit of a not centered person. So there's this checks around how is this individual in the now and what's their intentions for doing the work. You can have folks that are at a place in their life or, or whatever, where they really are just coming humbly into it because that as like a, in, in a service mindset, it's not about them anymore. That's what we look for. We look for people that show, right? It's, they're just, they're supporting others doing their own work. And that takes a level of emotional maturity that it is hard to find, but it's out there. It exists. It's, it's a wonderful thing to know that the way you're screening the facilitators, I particularly like what you just said about the, how are they in the now? And even though that may be hard to standardize, it's something that is fundamental because all of this will filter in of into the ceremony and how they interact with individuals, of course. Now, one thing is screening the facilitators. Another thing is the suitability screening for people yeah. to apply and to make sure that individuals are actually ready for this plant medicine. And also how to determine if someone is not, or maybe not at that particular time, a candidate for psilocybin. So does the screening process look there? So we have a pretty robust evaluation that people fill out. And it's just, it's asking lots of different questions from lots of different angles. And I guess there's a first kind of screening, which is like medical contraindications. They're relatively easy if someone is having medical issues then it's like we point them in another direction. If they've had recent 
psychiatric issues, severe kind of bipolar disorder, like that, that's just like a line. We direct them elsewhere. But then there, there's folks that meet all of those and then come in and there's another filter. And again, we're non-clinical. And so we have to manage who comes in so that we can have good group dynamics and that everybody's in there for the same intentions. We can't have someone super far on the extreme end of the trauma spectrum and then a group of healthy normals. And then the whole thing becomes about that one individual. So we have to be mindful about where everyone is. You can get a lot. You ask people these questions about their childhood and how they think about their relationships now. And you see what they, how they respond. And, and then we have calls when we just see what people's intentions are and what their expectations are. If folks are coming into this program thinking that it's just gonna, this is it's their last hope and, and this is the magic pill, this is the magic bullet, then they either need to reset their expectations and come at it from a different lens, or it's probably not a good program for them. We, again, there's probably like some standardized things, checks that we can look at at an individual basis, but we also try and say, how's this person right now? If it looks like they're dealing with things that are just out of scope for what our programs can provide, we try and point them to directions where it's, you, you need some more, this is one-on-one work. You know, this is like deep therapy work with a trained practitioner that's going to be able to just focus on you and that's what you need and maybe come see us in a year, two years or whatever. It's a very thoughtful individual decision. Excellent. Say no a lot. And that's a very important thing as well. And also here, it appears that it all comes down like with the facilitators to who is the individual in the now. Something that I'd like your take on with regards to medical history is particularly a lot of people who are dealing with trauma, depression, anxiety and such, if they have, if they're on a conventional medical, Western medical program, they might be taking SSRIs and SNRIs. And what is the interaction there with psilocybin? And what do you do if somebody comes to you? This is just what they're dealing with. They're on these meds. Otherwise, mm -hmm. actually would be a good candidate. But right now they're on these meds. Yeah. And this is something that we continually revisit. And we have experts that are consulting with us on this to make sure that we open up our programming as wide of population as possible. If we believe that we can really help them and can do it safely. So with SSRIs, there's, it doesn't look like there's any medical like contraindication. Like it's, there's not a danger. It's not like you're taking SSRIs and you take psilocybin and you're going to have some type of medical event. What it looks like is the risk is because of what they do to the chemicals is that you might have a dulled experience. So you might take three or four grams, but if you're on a high dose of SSRIs, you might not feel anything. And so, but some people can. And so how we've been handling that is, again, we don't provide medical advice. So it's really, if someone comes to us and they're on SSRIs, it's not a complete no. It's a go back to your current existing primary care, see what they think about potentially doing a program like this. And if you guys get thumbs up from your primary, we will on a case-by-case -case basis potentially approve. But you need to know that there's this risk that you come down and you don't feel anything. There's this, you have to manage, manage your actual medical care with medical practitioners. But it's a case-by-case -case basis. 
And again, it's more try and only take people that we feel like are at a good a place where this is the right type of work. You know what I mean? Some people just need more one-on-one work if it's like severe things that are gone. Thank you, Neil. And one thing I would like to actually bookend this wonderful conversation with you, something we touched upon before, and that is agency and getting connected to your true source of power again. So many ailments we have today, I feel, come from a disconnection, whether disconnected from nature, we're disconnected from community, from our true self, because we may just have a persona, we just function in a way that we think is expected of us, or we just pass a lot of things, maybe trauma, maybe things we're ashamed of and put them in the emotional closet. What's your take on psychedelics and how they may help us get in touch with our own power again and our agency? Yeah, I think you said it's, you get to this point in life where it becomes a bit of an autopilot in these, you're in these loops, neuroemotional loops, mental loops. You cannot even be able to see it objectively for what it is because you're in it. And what psychedelics seems like they can break those loops for a bit and they just allow you to come back in the now and see things with a bit more clarity and objectivity. And then with that awareness, then you can make choices, right? If you see what you're doing in your relationships or at your work that continues to put you into these loops and you can zoom out from it for a second, then you can try and actually make some change. But unfortunately, because of the way we live, it can be hard to make those shifts without that kind of third-party perspective. And perspective, that's what it is. It's about being able to gain a different perspective because when we're so tight in a certain place, all we can see is what we've been used to see. We're not even aware of all the possibilities out there. And it's just, it's noisy. There's, we're so overstimulated, right? And we're just, the central nervous systems activate. Most of us are in some state of fight or flight. It's a spectrum, but are in some activated mode. And when you're in that mode, you just see the world differently. You see everything differently. You see it because you're in a different state of being. Psychedelics and meditation, some of these other practices, they allow the mind and the body to settle, the central nervous system to settle. And then you can see the world through a different mode, through Mm -hmm. a different way of being, which then allows for all different types of positive benefits and change. And Neil, for people who'd like to learn more about whether this is something that could be helpful for them, they'd like to learn more about the Beckley Retreats or Foundation, how can they get in touch? Or if they want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Yeah, it's just BeckleyRetreats.com. I'm Neil at N-E-I-L at BeckleyRetreats.com. I love talking to people that are considering this work so they can reach out to me. And then even on the site, there's a way you can kind of book a call. You can book an intro call and it'll be someone on our team can get on and see if there might be a fit. Excellent. Neil, thank you so much for coming on Gateway yeah, Sessions, thank you. for sharing your story, your mission, and for all the beautiful work you're doing. It's been a real pleasure. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.